Um, well, we're continuing our Bible in 10 series. So welcome along today. If you've uh, joined us for the first time or if you missed last week, over the next uh, nine weeks, we're going to look at nine episodes through the Bible. And last week, I said it's like we're going to go up in a helicopter and we're going to get the panoramic view of the Bible and 10 times we're going to land that helicopter and we're going to see some of the key events that are in the Bible and hopefully by the end of the term you'll get an idea as to where we have headed and where we've uh, been. But as we look at uh, this story, last week of course it was a wonderful picture of the creation of God making all of the things in the created order. We saw how amazingly big that was and how incredibly atomic small that is as well and God saw that it was good. So after each day God pronounces uh, that the creation is the way that it should be. And after six days, he says that it's very good. And uh, if, if that was all we had, as Fiona said when she was talking about the banner, um, we would be living in paradise. But the reality is we're not. So something has gone wrong. And for all the evidence that there is, uh, that things are beautiful, that the world is good, you can find counter evidence that things are catastrophic and the world is evil. And we live now in this mixed world. We see some things that are incredibly delightful, some things that fill us with joy, and other things that are agonisingly painful, things that are seriously harsh. And some of the things we have control over um, because they come about as a result of the things that we do. Other things we have no control over. It's just the world that we live in. Um, I, I came across a quote during the week, and I'm going to get Tim to put it up on the screen. This is a quote by a guy called Gus Speth. And Gus Speth is kind of like the guru of people who think about issues to do with sustainable development, the future of our planet, uh, what the issues are in an environmental way that we're facing. And he set up an organisation, a world resources organisation, worked for the United Nations, and in reflecting on over 30 years of his work, he says, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists, actually the original quote was, we, we lawyers and scientists, because he's a leading lawyer, don't know how to do that. Now, this quote I, I find very, very helpful because it's not just that our world is in chaos. It's not just that horrific things go on in the natural order. It's that so many of them are the result of human greed and apathy. Well, where does this come from and what place does it have in the Bible? Uh, as Harry said, it's kind of page two or page three. Uh, the good stuff in the Bible lasts two chapters. Um, the, the really good stuff at the end of the Bible, two chapters. The rest of the Bible in between, a mess, confusion, chaos, pain, suffering, but not without hope. And we'll see that today. We have a message of hope for the world that we live in, for the lives that we live. 
So let's have a look at what the Bible has to say. We're going to cover a fair bit of territory fairly quickly uh, this afternoon. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we, we get the introduction into our world of sin. But here's the thing. If you were to do a study of the word sin, look up every reference to sin in the Bible, you wouldn't look at Genesis chapter 3 because it's not there. But it is the chapter that helps us to understand what sin is all about. And I'll explain that as we go. The first thing that I want to draw out here is that we see the created order with the man and the woman living in harmony. A beautiful picture at the end of chapter 2, the man and his wife, both naked, no shame. They're living in harmony in the garden, harmony between them, the created order and God. But then chapter 3. In chapter 3, you get this ominous note. And I think if this was a movie, uh, there would be some doom, 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 some very kind of ominous sounds, right? You can tell why I don't do movie tracks. But um, we, we read this. Now, the serpent or the snake, right? It's just a snake. The, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? Now, two things here are extraordinary. One is a snake talking. That's pretty extraordinary. But the second thing is the snake is actually questioning God. Did God really say that you must not eat, tree from, uh, eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we know that he didn't say that. That's not what he said back in chapter 2. The woman then replies to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, that kind of sounds right, but it's not right either. Because God had placed a restriction on only one tree and they were not to eat fruit from that tree. They weren't told whether or not they could touch it. So in these first two verses of Genesis chapter 3, having seen that everything that's been made is good, in these first two verses, we've got a distortion of truth. Now, let me tell you something. So do, do any of you here know um, deaf sign language? Nobody? Good. It doesn't matter what I'd say now, does it? Right. So apparently, the, the sign language for heresy, right, something which is wrong, goes like this. So a straight line, straight being truth, bent at the edges. That's what makes it heresy. And the thing about heresy is that it's deception. And you're not deceived if something looks radically wrong. You get deceived when something looks right and it's just kind of twisted on the edges. And that's what's going on here. The, the snake, the serpent, is deceiving the woman. He replies to her, you will not surely die, the serpent says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the first thing that I want us to notice about the nature or the anatomy of sin is that it comes from spiritual deception. The truth twisted. It's not true. 
They're taken in. There's a deception that takes place. The second thing that we see here is that the woman who decides to do what she wants and the man who follows her and does what he wants um, is actually giving us into the giving us a window into what the heart of sin is all about. Most people that I've spoken to about sin kind of see it as a silly word, a, a, a religious word that has to do with being naughty, right? And it's almost attractive. It's kind of enticing. Um, you get the picture of Adam and Eve eating an apple, right? It's somehow seductive. It's somehow uh, illicit. No, that's not what we're talking about here. Apples are apples. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, there's a... Um, in Canberra, which is the kind of capital of, of the sex shop industry, it has a place called Adam and Eve, Adult Centre. There's something about the, the popular understanding of this that, that sees there being an illicit sexuality that's on mind. No, there's not. The Bible says in chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked. They become one flesh and that's good. That's part of the good creation. It's not sex that is part of the sin. It's actually the man and the woman becoming like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean that they've now learnt the difference between good and evil. Because God always knew the difference between good and evil. And he called the man and the woman to eat from one tree. Sorry, eat from any tree, but not this one tree. So they are then being told what they can eat, what they can't eat. It's not that they don't know. They've actually been given that information by God. And it can't be that they've somehow become like God now in doing good and doing evil. Because God doesn't do evil. I think they've become like God in knowing good and evil in that they've actually taken the place of God. They've become the determiner of what is good and what is evil. Um, there, there's, there's this word autonomy. You've heard the word autonomy? We don't use it very often, but it literally means um, self, as in auto, rule, as in nomi. It's self-rule. That's what sin is. Sin is choosing to ignore God and set your own rules about the way that you want to live. And that's not being naughty on the edges. That's a full-blown rebellion against the one who created you and gave you life. And that's why Christians see that sin is such a crisis. Because we set ourselves up over and against the one who's created us and made us to live in relationship with him, in relationship with each other, in relationship with the created order. And we go, no, 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 I know better than that. And how did we fare? Well, we'll see how we fare as we read on. The results of sin. Well, there's a couple of things here. There's a loss of innocence. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They're ashamed now. Something has damaged the, the natural relationship between the husband and the wife. They are now hiding themselves from each other. They now hide from God. They're now ashamed of what they've done. Uh, they, they start to see the implications of this and they're not good. Um, you, you see blame entering into the picture. Uh, Adam and Eve both point the finger. If you have a look down at verse 12, the man says to God, uh, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So Adam, tough guy, stands up, takes responsibility. No. Now that woman, you know the woman you gave me? Yeah. She tempted me and I took some. And... Uh, he just passes the buck. What then happens? Actually, he even passes it to God, doesn't it? The woman that you put here with me. Right? It's not just the woman's fault. It's God's fault for giving the woman to the man. And then the woman, in verse 13, uh, says, well, God says to her, what is it that you've done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So one of the results of sin is a loss of innocence. Another result of sin is that we point the finger and blame other people. And that's just so true. Um, have you ever heard politicians apologise for stuff? I, I doubt you ever have, because they don't. They say, I'm sorry if you are upset at what I did. That's blaming them for being upset at what they did. It's not... I'm sorry that I did this, which was a horrible thing to do. And you've re and, but it's not just politicians, guys, ladies. It's all of us. The, the nature of, of independent rule, the, the nature of, of replacing God in our lives with ourselves is that we just keep passing the buck to other people. How quick we are to blame. We see relationship breakdown. Um, in Genesis 2, the, the man and the woman are in perfect harmony with each other and, and you get this wonderful picture in the Garden of Eden and here now they hide from each other, they, they hide from God. In verse 8, uh, there's fear and there's shame and the good relationship with God is now damaged and so they can't face it. I remember one time doing a, a kind of kid's talk like the one Fiona was doing earlier and I got a bunch of people to come down the front, a um, bunch of kids, and they were huddled all together. Everybody was really close. And I said, take a step away if you've ever lied to somebody. Everyone takes a step away. Take a step away if you've ever disobeyed your parents. They all take another step away. Another step if you've ever taken something that doesn't belong to you another step away and you can see what's happening this group that we're united together they just get further and further and further apart and you imagine you do that for a day you do that for a week you do that for a lifetime and you get people who are so separated from each other the breakdown of relationships the the crisis of families and communities and nations that cannot get on with each other that's what happens when we try and rule the world without God. But it's not just cause and effect. 
It's not just when we try and do it, we stuff it up, although that is true. God responds and uh, the consequences run deeper and we see the consequences at work in our lives today. So verse 14, uh, God brings what is described here as curse. Now, I, I, let me just say something about curse. Uh, the most recent time I would have heard the word curse in society, just in popular language, was when I watched a Harry Potter movie. Um, you, know, you get a curse put on you. And so it's not something that we take terribly seriously. But if you want to understand curse, I think, think blessing and flip it 180 degrees. So God created this wonderful world, the Garden of Eden, and he is blessing people. Now flip that and we'll see what happens. So verse 14, he says, God says to the serpent, because of this, curse to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And here you've got this kind of uh, judgment upon the snake uh, for the, the deception and the opposition towards God. And it's not going to go well. There's going to be this constant ongoing uh, tension. To the woman, verse 16, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to children. Um, and there's a picture that is well known. Uh, many of you here will have experienced the pains of childbirth. And then it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, it's a little bit um, tricky to understand What's being said there when it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you? Is it saying that the woman will be sexually attracted to the husband and want him, but he will dominate her? It could be. But the use of these two terms, desire and rule, um, come up again later, less than a chapter later, in Genesis 4, and verse 7, let me read this to you and, and then I'll make my point. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So you've got these same two words in the original, desire and rule. But here you've got sin desiring to have you and the response being you need to rule over it. Take that back to what's being said about the woman and the man. Her desire for a husband, it may well be the same thing. Her desire is to rule over him, but of course he's stronger and he will rule over her. It may be that. But whatever it is, it's not the ideal picture for marriage. Things are not the way that they were intended to be. There is now judgment on relationships. Um, verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you listen to your wife and ate, it's not listening to the wife that's the problem. Right? Just need to be clear here with the exegesis on this, because you listen to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
In other words, God says that work now, particularly agricultural work, is just going to be tough. It's going to be hard work. That's why it's going to be called work, because it's hard work. And this is going to affect everything. Now, what we see are these things borne out again and again and again and again through every layer of humanity, through every year of history, in every personal relationship, in every human being. These are the things that get experienced. Not only is there now a cursed world that has been, uh, in Romans 8 terms, subjected to frustration, but there is also, and catastrophically, the entry of death into the human experience. Death comes into the world. We find the most serious consequence of sin equals death, some people like to speak of death as being natural, you know, the circle of life, what goes around comes around. Death is just normal, it's just part of life. No, it's not part of life, it's the opposite of life. And we weren't created to die, we were created to live, but now because of our rejection of God, God brings death into our experience. It's his judgment. But we'll also see it's his mercy. Because if we were to live in the world that we've got now forever, in a world which is cursed, where relationships are broken, where there's pain and suffering, where there's warfare, where there's murders, where there's, where there's natural disasters, where everything is going wrong, then that would be hell on earth. Now there is the mercy of death, but we'll say more about that in a second. Because the Bible actually speaks about death in two ways. At its heart, death is to be cut off from life. Um, but deeper than this, spiritual death is to be cut off from God. And if we will turn back to God and put our trust in him, then physical death will be the entryway to not experiencing spiritual death. Uh, this is a little bit complicated. I know if you're not hearing those things for the first uh, before or this is the first time. But I want to point out in Genesis 3, um, en route here, what some people describe as the proto-evangel. Um, big words for the first gospel. Proto, first, evangel, good news. The first good news in the Bible, after the man and the woman rebel against God, here is the first good news, and it's there in verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, as people read Genesis chapter 3 for the first time, and by the way, if you, if you weren't with us a fortnight ago, John and Betty Sharp, uh, who were missionaries in a remote part of Indonesia, uh, there for a good many years and saw an entire tribe of people um, turn to God, hand their lives over to Jesus. It's worth finding that and listening to it on our website. But these people who had been watching the lives of John and Betty and their girls for five years before they told them anything from the Bible, 
as soon as they heard these words about the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, they were hanging on every new birth in the story afterwards. They were asking the question, is this the one? Is this the one that's going to crush the serpent's head? And something bad goes on and that person dies. Well, is the next one, is that going to be the one? And John and Betty shared with us how these people came to understand that when you work your way right down through history and you get to Jesus, you find the descendant of that first woman who will crush the serpent's head, that serpent being Satan, the devil. We see a bit here also about the, uh, the, the scope of sin, uh, that sin is universal. In fact, if, if you have been following the Bible in 70 or if you just read on uh, from Genesis 3, in the next few chapters you will read of murder, rape, betrayal, incest, and we could keep going. So much of the early part of the Bible, uh, if it was to be put on film, would be rated R. It's nasty stuff what you read. And it's a great reminder to us that it's not that God reaches out to find the good people and chooses them because they're just not there. There's a pattern. There's a DNA. The problem is that now people continue to turn their backs on God and everything we do is tainted by pride and selfishness and double-mindedness. And I know that sometimes even my best motives are tainted by something that's selfish. And that's just the way it is now. Um, there's a story that goes that uh, at the sometime early in the ninth, no, the, early in the twentieth century, so the last one, that the Times uh, in London put out a, a question to some of the world's great authors, and and invited them to write an essay in response. The question was this: What do you think is the problem with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter in to the Times with this response. Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. There's something succinct about that, isn't there? It's a great essay. What's the problem with the world? Me. You might say you. It's that we just aren't the people that we should be. And we, we push God out of our lives. And we fail to live the lives that we were created to live. Remember one time we were living in Canberra and um, I was riding my motorbike and I went past a sticker on the back of a car and it said, I used to be an atheist until I realised that I was God. Think about it. That's the nature of sin. The honesty of that person, or the cleverness of that sticker maker. The reality is that we push God out of the way and replace him. The scope of sin, well, there's a lot we could say about this. You read on in the rest of the Bible, it's universal. Um, and we can't blame Adam or Eve, because if it was you or I, if it was Dave and Fiona instead of Adam and Eve, we'd have done the same thing. And we prove that by continuing to do it. Each and every one of us 
there's only been one perfect human, and that is Jesus. There's continued deception. As you read through the Bible, you, you see the, the devil at work with people being deceived in all kinds of ways. He's described as the father of lies, that ancient serpent, the deceiver. Um, in fact, it, there's an interesting passage in Ephesians 2. Let me just read to you a couple of verses. When we talk about sin, uh, sin is both an expression of the work of the devil, the work of our own human hearts, and the influence of the world around us. All three working together. And I'll just read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So there's peer pressure, right? Following the way of the world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, it's a, unusual, but it's a description of, of the devil, of Satan, the great deceiver. And then it says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So there's our own desires and will. And all three working together. My selfishness, the influence of the devil, uh, the, the pull of a world that's corrupt. It's sin. That's what it leads. But where is the hope to be found? Well, the hope is to be found, as I said, in chapter 3 and verse 15, that a descendant of the woman will crush the serpent. Uh, but there are a number of things that I think we can take heart in as we look at this. And one is it's so important to realise that this world is not outside of God's control. It's not like God made it and it, and it ran amok and he's never been able to catch up with it again. Now, let, let me read to you from Romans chapter 8 and verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that is God. God subjected the world to frustration. He brought the curses that we read about. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. In other words, God has brought his judgment on the creation for our rebellion against him, but it's in hope that it will one day be restored. That's what we're looking forward to. And verse 22, And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up till now. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption. You see, God's judgment on this world is not forever. We're, we're waiting for things to be put right. And the indicator that God will put things right is that he sent his son, Jesus. Why did Jesus come? I'm going to read to you from 1 John chapter 3. And verse 8, um, I know we're jumping around the Bible just a little bit. We're nearly, nearly at the end, but listen to this, because this answers that question. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, 
because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Why did Jesus come? To overcome the deception of the evil one, the devil. Or to put it in another term, in Romans chapter 16, right at the end of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he says this, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, that takes us right back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent crusher is Jesus. God subjected the world to judgment, not for eternity, but for a time, in hope that Jesus would come and he would destroy the devil's work, he would overcome the evil one, and he would put things right between people who are rebels against God and God. He would bring peace. The God of peace would do this. And that gives great hope. The hope that we can be right with God again. Yes, we've rebelled against God. Yes, we're guilty of sin. Sure, we are as bad as anybody else. Given the opportunity, we would be worse than we are. But God has reached out to us. He sent his son to us. And his son died in our place. And the devil has been overthrown. And so now we are called to live as children of the light. Now we're called to be people who don't live in sin. As we put our trust in Jesus, we're called to a new life. And I want to finish with these words from 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, get real, sin is real. But my dear children, he writes, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Don't keep on rebelling against God. But if anyone does, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is such a statement of reality. Yes, Jesus has come to save us from our sins, but we will sin. And when we do, let's confess our sins, knowing that God has acted in Jesus Christ to forgive us and to change us. And we thank him for that. Now, I'm just going to um, pause uh, for a couple of minutes. If you've got any questions or comments, if it's, I know we've covered quite a bit of territory, uh, but it might have triggered some things for you. So here's a brief question time.